You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, where you can get your steps in on the famous Wreck Beach Stairs, this is Blue and Goldcast. Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, this is Blue and Goldcast. I'm Santa Ono, the President and Vice Chancellor of UBC. On this season of the Blue and Gold cast, I'm speaking with the people who are leading some of the most innovative and creative work coming out of our campuses. My guest today is Dr. Margaret Moss. Dr. Moss is an enrolled member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation, three affiliated tribes of North Dakota, and has Canadian Sioux and Saskatchewan lineage. She is director of UBC's First Nations House of Learning and an associate professor in the School of Nursing. In April of 2021, she was appointed to the Board of Population Health and Public Health Practice by the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Moss is working on multiple levels to improve health equity for marginalized populations. She was also a key stakeholder in the development of UBC's Indigenous Strategic Plan, which launched in 2020. Margaret, welcome to Blue and Goldcast. Thank you so much for being on the show today. To start off, I'd like to hear a little bit about your story. How did you get started in academia? What was your journey like to get where you are today? Well, thank you, Santa. I'm really happy to be here and glad that you've asked me. Sure, I can tell you a little bit about uh, my journey. It was sort of securitous. I can't say that word very well. <clears throat> I started in science, actually, and, and then the health trajectory. So I first obtained my BS in biology, uh, actually at the Washington State University, just below here. So I've been in the West before. And then I took a position at the National Institutes of Health, working in the National Cancer Institute, and I worked on protocols to map carcinogens and feeding and using human lung cells and whatnot. Although that was fascinating, I was more interested in people than in cells. And I had worked in college through summers as a uh, certified nursing assistant. So I decided I wanted to go into healthcare. And so I pursued the nursing degree. So actually, I was a nurse first for my first 10 professional years, I guess, and then moved into academia. So I've been a nurse for 33 years and in academia for 22. Two years after earning the RN, I transferred into the Indian Health Service, which is an agency in the U.S. that is to provide health care based in treaties and um, law and so forth. And I moved there from the Veterans Affairs, where I had been working in Portland. So we moved to New Mexico, and I worked in the Santa Fe Indian Hospital for about six years. And there I noted that elders, which is my interest area, would never allow themselves to be 
discharged into what they say down there, Anglo or non-Indian care, and would rather go back to reservations and take their chances. And unfortunately, they did take their chances. There weren't any services or, or very few, and they usually did not do well. So this became my question when I started to move into more academic pursuits in my, both my master's and dissertation as to why won't, especially traditional elders and reservation-based elders, accept long-term care as it is, and do gerontological theories really make sense with this population? So I did my dissertation as an ethnography on aging in the Zuni or a Shiwi people of New Mexico, and they're very traditional. They don't, they all still speak their language. They weren't Christianized and they're very traditional. So short answer, uh, there are many, many cultural and spiritually bound reasons that they won't accept Anglo care and no gerontological theories don't fit. So taking that, I went to my first academic position at the University of Minnesota and tenured there in 2006. Following that, I noted there were a lot of state and federal barriers to having American Indians have focused long-term care on their land. So multiple states have what they call a moratoria on new, new, any new nursing home beds, but there were hardly any on reservations, and now there couldn't be any. And for all the same reasons I just told you, they won't accept the other care, so around and around. So these legal and structural barriers led me to law school. So I focused in elder law, malpractice, and federal Indian law. And I also minored in dispute resolution and conflict negotiation. And so finally, I followed this up with a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship and staff the Senate, U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging during the Obamacare years. And although fascinated, I was recruited from there to Yale, and then I went to University of Buffalo, and now this is my fourth university. <laughs> Well, we're so happy that you're here. And that's a fascinating story. You worked on the, the 2020 In Plain Sight report, which is, you know, I, th I think really a groundbreaking uh, piece of work and really fund fundamentally important for us here in BC, but also has implications for healthcare across Canada and around the world. And specifically to your point about how elders felt, right? That report brought awareness to the issues of indigenous discrimination in the healthcare setting in BC, which is really quite severe and also has implications for, for our role as a university, graduating many healthcare providers that are gonna be in the health authorities. Uh, so what were some of the main results of that report? One of the reasons that we named it In Plain Sight is because you've always heard it. Everybody already knew and it was everywhere, but it's but it wasn't really put down on paper, you know. And in the West, if it's not written down or studied or whatever, it doesn't exist. So we already knew it existed. Everybody who uh, responded to the questionnaires and the one-to-ones and sent us in stories and so forth. I mean, it was obvious. So, of course, this report makes it clear that there is indeed racism experienced throughout healthcare in BC. And some things that struck out for me the most as an Indigenous nurse was that there is no safe harbor for Indigenous patients. And what I mean by that is there's almost uh, no place or every touch point could be, I'm not saying it is, a potential trauma point. So what I mean by this is from the minute somebody calls an ambulance, they could get racism in the ambulance and then in the ER at the clerk, by the nurses, by the doctors, by the radiologists, by the surgeons, by the even pastoral workers, even security, especially security in some cases, social work. So 
as we've learned, anti-racism then requires intention and action and not passive bystanding. So there were 24 recommendations under three headings, systems, behaviors, and beliefs. And I'm particularly familiar with the last one, number 24, which is the BC government established a task team to propel and ensure the implementation of these recommendations. And I'm familiar with that because I was lucky enough to be co-faculty in the School of Nursing's mandatory course, one of the few across campus, which is the Indigenous Peoples Health Promotion, where we had some of those implementers, the people on those implementation teams come to our, our course. Well, that's that's really wonderful. And, you know, it's important work, as I said. And my next question is really part of the strategy is that people will change in leadership positions, but we have to figure out a way to hardwire into the DNA of the institution this accountability, this responsibility. And you also worked on the Indigenous Strategic Plan, which uh, is meant to be that hardwiring of steps that we take, our responsibility, our accountability. Tell me about what that process was like. You were a key part of developing the ISP that has attracted global attention, as you know. Can you tell us a little bit about what the project process was like and tell us about the plan itself? Sure. Well, yes, I I was so glad to have co-led the ISP, Indigenous Strategic Plan. And I was able to bring my knowledge, as as I've just outlined in the beginning, of uh, strategic planning from my managerial and legal education. So so that was very helpful to see, you know, know, understanding what plans are all about. So the process was rigorous, it was representative, and it was bottom-up, which is what we hope to bring in, you know, indigenous ideas and so forth and not top down hierarchy. So there was, of course, a lot of prep work behind the scenes and then four months of targeted engagement, which took us to the first draft. The stakeholders in that were we talked to 11 in-person engagement sessions and workshops, individual meetings with deans, VPs, leadership, both campuses. And then we had an online survey, which, of course, was both campuses and was able to capture also some alumni. So we collated up to upwards of 15,000 data points from our in-person and online engagements. And the in-person sessions included 100 indigenous students, faculties, and staff. So that's pretty good. And uh, survey response is about seven to 11%, depending on how you counted the completed processes and whatnot. So then after we collated and analyzed what everybody said, we took it to open houses, both campus, to prioritize what we found. So the result was eight goals and 43 actions. And it's in the form you see it today. And you can see it online, isp.ubc.ca. And now implementation is key. So until I took this interim AVP equity role a couple months ago, I was chair of the ISP implementation committee for the last three years. So we are now piloting an implementation questionnaire to two faculties to see how to collect, collate, and report what's being done around the campus. And because we're doing this because we heard loud and clear at the launch from some of the chiefs and others that this is great, but now we need action. So so that's where we're rolling to now. Now, the university has put aside a resource. There's you know resource just for a set of, of projects, and that's already rolled out. And we have a fund for students, and all that's being adjudicated right now. Um, and I understand that there's uh, been sort of a flood of proposals that have been received. That's good. 
Because, because you know, we, we wanted to have more ideas than what we could fund so that we could really hone in on the best ideas and support them well. It's a little unusual for, for the, the approach that UBC is taking, which is really opening it up to everyone and not, as you say, a top-down approach where I would say or the provost would say, this is what we need to do. It really is going to be indigenous-led by you know, both indigenous and non-indigenous members of the community. But it's, it's you know, an approach that I think is, is wholly appropriate for, for an indigenous strategic plan. Um, would you agree that this is the way that we should be moving forward, that, that everything we, that we do should be bottom up or the ground up? Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And I was in uh, one meeting maybe a month or two ago about specifically talking about having a student stream so students could also put into this funding. So everybody, you know, we really collected these voices and had wide collaboration to come to this point to have the ISP. So then why wouldn't we have wide, you know, casting to uh, get the ideas back in? Because that's where we got the ideas to make it in the first place was uh, a wide net. So, yeah, I agree with that. With UBC's uh, Longhouse which is an incredibly important space for faculty, staff, and students. And, and it's actually, if I'm, if I'm correct, it's being expanded, right, as we speak. Tell, tell us a little bit about your work there and, and what's going on in terms of this renovation. Sure. And I mean, that longhouse is epic. <laughs> it's one of the things that finally drew me here, too, is that and the Puiwa Library. I thought, wow, this is great to have spaces. It's even a, a long way ahead of any of those other universities I mentioned <laughs> that had no spaces. So at the longhouse, I'm excited to say there are a lot of things going on. So first, our staff has grown into areas identified as high needs, such as the addition of a first year retention coordinator, which we brought on just this last year. And uh, we're happy to say that a second lunch has just now been available to be trialed coming up in answer to the food security issues and in continued community building. So that's exciting. We opened the Indigenous Student Collegium in fall of 2019. Unfortunately, six months later came the pandemic. So it has had to go virtual. This last fall, we did try using it in an alternative space, which is the Great Hall, because the Longhouse has been shut down for all these various uh, construction projects, as well as some COVID issues. So we are remodeling. We're able to remodel because we moved them into another space, but now then they went virtual. So the good and the bad, the good part is we were able to remodel the space. It should be opening very soon, brought up the same as all the others where there's fabulous, you know, kitchen spaces, study space, lounging space, and so forth. So it, it should open imminently. So that's fabulous. And then on the other end of the longhouse, we are building out an extension, which has been in the plan, which was in the plans 30 years ago when the longhouse was built. But it's now being finished with prompting by Verna Kirkness, the first FNHL director who came to me and said, I've I've got something for you to do. <laughs> and so with that prompting and commitment from the provost and the provost's office, it's actually being done. It's really moving along. It's wonderful. Should be done sometime in the summer this year, just ahead of the 30 year anniversary, which will be 2023. So we're looking forward to some openings and, and, and things happening there. Yeah, whatever we can do to sort of, you know, shine a spotlight on this expansion project and what you think will stem from it 
and really telling the story of why these spaces are important to the students, because I think it's, it's, it's very, very important. And it's also, I think, a model for what we should be doing with other equity-deserving groups, right? That we don't have these spaces for, for the di- diversity of groups that we have on campus. And I, I can tell you that one of the reasons that I'm excited that you've moved into this another role uh, in working with the equity and inclusion office is because you have already done this. You have already thought about, through your earlier work, what it actually feels like not to feel included. You understand what the barriers are. You know what some of the solutions are through your work with In Plain Sight. So you've been working with the Equity and Inclusion Office, and I know it's early days. I know it's, it's a big place, and you and I have been talking regularly, and I know that you're trying to figure out what everyone's doing, and, and uh, you're thinking about how to streamline some of the work, how, align it with some of these plans like the ISP and the, and the Inclusion Action Plan, and that in and of itself is, is, is difficult work. I thank you for that leadership. But what are some of the main goals that you might be able to point to in your early days there? Yeah, it it is a whole new enchilada over there. (laughs) So uh, it's quite a big team as compared to my First Nations House of Learning team. But yes, I'm glad I had the experience over in NHL and I could bring some of those lessons over. And so reaching back through my experience in education, I am lucky enough to have as a background in disability aging and disability and these sorts of things as in my nursing area. And that's one area that is upcoming in focus. So it is the focus for Canadian Canada research chairs now. And I find there's so many aspects to this in the inclusion arena. So I'm happy to guide this burgeoning area as we take that on over there with a much needed lens. I find my legal and conflict resolution background is uh, valuable in the human rights area, as well as in the education and partnerships. So I'm able to just sort of get a handle on what it looks like in our office, outside of our office, across both campuses campuses and so forth and be able to start organizing in my head those things. I do note that I do have directors and managers and staff in these areas and I'm they're all doing a very specific wonderful work and I'm happy to lend my understanding, support, uh, voice where it's needed. I really do try to choose to work collaboratively. But I just want to help lead where it's needed and see where we're going. So as more needs are coming to this portfolio, along with the Inclusion Action Plan implementation, I like to take stock as to what's needed and when. Priorities are shifting constantly. New things are coming at us all the time. It's just the time we live in. And so I am trying to offer a steadying hand, move priorities forward as they're needed and sort of support the staff to do their work. So those are some of the, just in the very preliminary stage is what I'm thinking about. Margaret, you've been involved in the ISP. You have been involved uh, in the conversations to the ARI task force, which is the, the a group that's really been focused on equity, diversity, and inclusion across all the groups. And it's, it's, a, it's a massive document of 330 pages, but it's about to be released. And there's some overlap, but there's also distinctiveness. So I'd love to have your perspective on how we uh, move forward all of these different initiatives but we also have alignment, but also respect the, the distinctiveness of each of those initiatives. Sure. And the area, uh, if people don't know, it's the anti-racism and inclusion excellence 
uh, a report and coming out of the task force, which we will be uh, assisting in the implementation throughout uh, the whole university. So we do have people in our office who are currently putting together this rather large scanning document, and it includes the inclusion action plan, of course, where it started, then eight other plans that are either in part or in whole around EDI issues, and then the ISP. And I have made it clear to my team that the ISP should be there, but make notation that it's, there are certain separate things that just don't go on along with everyone else due to sovereignty issues, land issues, you know, treaties, things that don't apply at all to the other equity deserving groups. So, but importantly, it should be there. So for instance, what is happening with this huge scanning document is looking at the overlap. So there's uh, like 50 some recommendations in the ARI report and 43 actions in ISP and I think 50 some in the IAP. So I think there's a total of, I don't know, 500 or something total actions and things. But luckily people are really putting their head down and put this thing together. So there are areas that in principle overlap. So one being recruitment and retention of the students and staff. So that's in the ISP. It's also in many of these others. So while that's an area of overlap and intersect, perhaps the way you take care of it is going to be different and specific for the ISP as opposed to the other. But it's important when thinking about funding and some other things to recognize there are many, many areas. Spaces is another one. So when we talked about the Longhouse, uh, the extension and remodel hit about three of the uh, goals of the ISP about holistic, you know, learning spaces and, you know, recruitment and whatnot. So uh, it's really important to see where there are some overlaps. So targeted funding and efforts can, can happen once instead of 500 times. So, yeah. We're, we're putting that together now. The idea of health equity is a through line in a lot of your research and work. What exactly is health equity? What can it look like? I've taught on it in all those universities that I've been in. I have published two books on these topics. So the first being American Indian Health and Nursing in 2015, which talks a lot about the inequities, the roots of these inequities, structural determinants of health that are still in place affecting, of course, American Indian or indigenous people in North America, inadequate funding, access issues, lack of education in the health professions on indigenous health. So this is true, both U.S. and Canada. Then I published Health Equity in Nursing, which is the second book completed since I've been here and published in 2020. Health equity is when people have the fair opportunity to reach their fullest health potential. So this happens when people or systems find, recognize barriers. Sometimes they find them and just move on. They didn't even recognize it. So that's part of the in plain sight thing. Recognize those barriers to fair opportunity and then mitigate those barriers. Lift where areas are lagging, add where areas are absent. And this is both structural and systemic, but it's also individual responsibility. All these things have to happen on all levels. So these inequities have led to things like the long-term care thing I started out with, where uh, there's nothing available on, and this is in the U.S. reservations, and yet states now say there can't be anything available. <laughs> you know, they have to go to Anglo, the Southwest facilities, and we've already told you they won't. And so, you know, it's 
catch 22 over and over or the murdered and missing, especially in, in, in U.S., the uh, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls due largely to laws still in place on reservations where if a non-Indian comes, and this is U.S. vernacular onto Indian lands, they can do heaven knows what and leave. And they know that nothing's going to happen. They literally call it open season because the laws aren't in place. They know they're going to get away with it and laws have to change in the policies. The laws guiding that are still from the 1800s, so you can imagine what people thought of indigenous people in the 1800s. So these are some barriers that are right there that need to be changed. So I incorporate ideas from indigenous knowledge and culture, and that is you can't have health unless all four aspects of the person, the domains, are healthy. So that is the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual domain. So for especially indigenous and even some other groups, that has to happen, you know, balance, all that sort of thing. So one elder told me the story of think about it as four tires on a car. They all need to be inflated and going. If one's blown, it's going to be a bumpy ride. If two are blown, you know, heaven help you, you have to pull off the side of the road. And in many cases for indigenous people, both countries, all four tires are blown and nobody, again, no Nobody's noticed and they've just limped off to the side of the road. So health equity is recognizing the blown tires and, you know, doing what you can to fill them up and make sure the person can keep moving as as well as they can. What is your future vision for health equity in B.C.? What kind of tangible changes would you like to see? Yeah. And again, as both a nurse with the underlying tenets here of mind, body and spirit, and then the indigenous four domains with regard to health, health equity in BC is going to have to attend to all of these domains. Right now, even with in plain sight, it's largely focused on the physical because that's what health professions teach. Mostly, you know, we're lucky if we get to mental rarely then out to spiritual and emotional. But if we can start to widen, I know we're even having a trouble just on the physical, you know, how to take care of this person without having them run out the back door or take care of them halfway and then they have poor outcomes. But really, if we start bringing in the idea of the full person, each one of those areas feeds the other. So here at UBC in BC, you know, we're thinking of that wider perspective of a person and health and um, thinking about elders programs to bring in as, you know, an alternate to some of the other maybe mental health or emotional support that that's on here, community engagement these lunches around, you know, food insecurity, because you have the social determinants of health, food and housing and, you know, education and so forth. Those things have to be mitigated to absolutely hit health equity. So I think bringing these ideas about all the services, not just physical, will all lead to health equity. Thank you so much. As for your work here at UBC, which is ever expanding, what what are your future goals and how can you be see how can I help you? Given my background as an indigenous woman, a nurse scholar, disability and minority health, my legal training and so forth, I would like to continue to move in whichever area I'm in, the Jedi aspect to all these things, the justice, equity, disability, and the second D, decolonization, inclusion and the second I of indigenization or however you want to 
health equity or even this Jedi stuff it is sort of a through line <laughs> through all my work since I hit the, the the health professions and the legal work. So so we don't want to let up on these very crucial areas that intersect. And with success for university vision of inspiring people and pursuing excellence and so forth. So from the university we need <laughs> constant, you know, persistent thought and action around this. So that's time, talent, and treasure to, to sort of attain this excellence. So I often say, especially in my nursing <laughs> courses, you know, the persistent targeted way that some of these equity de- de- deserving groups have been put down or, you know, held under the same persistent targeted, you know, actions and so forth have to happen to reverse it. We will be there to help. I'll be there to help uh, you inspire us, Margaret. Thank you for this enormous impact of your work in these different areas in a very short period of time. Thank you. Margaret Moss, thank you so much for being on Blue and Goldcast today. Dr. Margaret Moss is director of UBC's First Nations House of Learning and an associate professor in the School of Nursing. That does it for this episode. You can find links to our guests' work as well as previous editions of the show at blueandgoldcast.com. You can also find us on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify. You can tweet at me at UBC Prez, that's Prez with a Z. I'm Santa Ono. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to a Sided Media production. C-I-D-E-D. Find out more at SidedMedia.ca.